Welcome to episode four of season two of Delving Into Dance, this time with the wonderful Noel Tovey, who has lived an incredible life through trials and tribulations to incredible success. His career spanning 60 years in Europe and Australia as a dancer, choreographer, actor, director, advocate and activist. He made his professional debut in 1954 in Paint Your Wagon, becoming the first ballet dancer of Indigenous heritage, having studied with Madame Baravansky in Melbourne. His life is detailed in two books, Little Black Bastard and his latest book, And Then I Found Me, released in March 2017. These phenomenal books are must-reads, charting one incredible life. Talking about incredible, you're going to love this interview. From a look of dance in Melbourne in the 1940s and 50s to creating a career in the UK, Noel discusses being present at the Stonewall riots in New York and the harrowing decline and death of his partner during the AIDS epidemic. This is one of the longer interviews I've done for Delving Into Dance and I really encourage you to listen to it all the way through. This episode contains adult content and I started by asking what was his journey into dance? I always wanted to be a performer. My father had a beautiful voice. Um, Unfortunately, he was a drunk, as everyone in the house was, and addicted to cocaine. And I found out later on that my grandfather and um, my uncle George were very famous as the Bohee brothers. Um, So I guess... You know, I'm the fifth generation, but how how did I start? I, I've never been to school, so um, I was coming home from a rather heavy night of debauchery <laughs> uh, because I was a rent boy, um, and I was stopped by the police, and one of the detectives knew me and said, get a job, or next time no, you're coming with us. So I got a job as a messenger boy at Collins Book Depot. Well, I sold newspapers first, then I graduated to a messenger boy. And a girl who I worked with, the first day, for instance, she took me for coffee, told me she was a lesbian, smoked black Sobrani cigarettes. We became very good friends. And she took me to a student performance of Sophie at um, the National Theatre in Melbourne, which was uh, in St. Peter's Hill, near the fire station. And uh, after the male solo, she dug me in the ribs of the elbow and said, you know, you could do that. And I knew I could. And it was like turning a light on, but I didn't know that you could buy tights or ballet shoes. So the next day we went to Payne's Bon Marche in Burke Street and for 12 and 6 I bought a pair of long white underpants and a packet of, and for a penny I bought a packet of black dolly dye and that evening I went home and stitched up the crutch and dyed them black in the copper in the backyard and Cheska found the um, times of the beginners classes at the National and uh, I went, and I mean, I there was Gary McSween and all you know people who later on became quite something in the dance world, but they all thought that I was very odd because I had 
homemade tights and um, I was barefooted. And uh, at the end of the class, Miss Alexander told Bill Cast to take me aside and introduce me to the mysteries of the jockstrap. <laughs> so I stayed there for about three months and I knew there was something better. So I, I went to Borovansky, Madame Borovansky, and she said to me, no, you're very talented, but you need four classes a week. I said, I can only afford one, and I'm selling newspapers to pay for that. And she said, I will give you three classes for nothing if you clean the studio for me. And so that was my introduction. So what age were you when you started? I was about 14, and it was really too late. 14 is considered, you know, some of the boys there were very young. Like, they start, these days, they start like seven, eight, nine. Um, in your new book, you talk about your first debut in Paint Your Wagon. Yep. And um, you describe that time as pretty, like, hard and humiliating. Oh, it was. I mean, unbeknown to me... The boys and some of the girls, and including the principal dancer, went to the English choreographer and said they didn't want to work with me. She asked them why, and they said I was notorious, that I'd been in jail, that I was a notorious homosexual, and, and that I was Aboriginal. And, had, well, in 2010, there was a reunion at Her Majesty's, and one of the dancers was there. And he said to me, he told me this, what had happened. And uh, apparently the choreographer said to the group, she said, well, you can all leave. I can get more of you, but I can't get one more of him and made me the understudy to the principal dancer. Wow. And so then I, but, you know, the, they gave me help. And so then I practiced uh, the way I walked and stood and looked. And I waited until we got on, went on tour to Sydney. And when one of the boys tried to belittle me, I turned around and let him have it. Yeah, wow. And then I told them all individually what, how they'd hurt me. And after that, they left me alone. What did she see in you? Well, I was a good dancer, for one thing. She must have had so much belief, though, to turn around. Well, she did. And... She did because what I haven't told you is that there was only the uh, I replaced Ron Ray, who broke his leg, and so there was only a week for me to learn the show, and I learnt it all, of course. So, in changing your physicality and thinking about how you, um, I guess, built that confidence, was that? Well, I knew that I wasn't accepted by the Melbourne theatre establishment and I knew that if I took a step forward, I'd take a step back. I never worked for Williamson's again. Betty Pounder made sure of that. Um, but I did a lot of work for the Princess Theatre. I was in a lot of musicals. and My father had worked with Kitty Carroll, Mrs Carroll, um, when she was known as Pretty Kitty Stewart and was a soubrette. And so I heard her once, I was auditioning for uh, Bells Are Ringing, and I heard her say to the English director and choreographer, take the tall dark boy on the end, darling, we always use him. 
<laughs> so I I spent I did Salad Days, Free as Air, Music Man, Once Upon a Mattress. I did them all there at the Princess. So obviously you love performing. Oh, I did. What is that feeling like when you are on stage and you are in that moment? There's nothing to compare it with, really. Also, as a choreographer, uh, it, there's nothing to compare that moment when they applaud. When you're on stage, like I did a lot of work, a lot of reviews with Mary Hardy, and we could improvise. And uh, it was in, um, a wonderful feeling being able to take the audience to another place. Yeah. And so the applause was... Um, some performers talk about it, you know, the love coming over the footlights or... You know, different ways of describing that well, audience. It was the applause. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, well, if you were taking the piss out of somebody and they were sitting there in a late night review and they were applauding you, you knew you knew that you'd done a good job. I Like I did a, a wicked send-up of Frank Thring in a review. I used to be able to impersonate him. Um, and I knew him very well. In fact, this whole thing was, I'm getting a teeny bit wary, aren't you, of Olive and Bubba and Barney and Rue. And <laughs> he actually loved it. <laughs> yeah. um, so your like, career is like around 50 years or so, like choreography, uh, well, dancing? A, a direct, as a director and choreographer, I, I really... As a director, I started, I was asked to direct something at the Mountview Theatre, Gigi at the Mountview Theatre School. That was the first thing I directed. That was quite early. But as a choreographer, it started when I was asked to choreograph The Boyfriend at Leatherhead. And Sandy Wilson came down to see it with Michael Codron. They were astounded by the quality of the production and Sandy said to me we're going to do it in the West End then I was in a, I went to Ibiza I went to do a nightclub act in Ibiza with my guitar the club wasn't built what? <laughs> so Terry Thomas who was a friend of mine said to me the others came back I was going with a group and they came back to London. Terry said to me, stay and be a nanny and take care of Tiger. Well, by the end of the day, I had Mike Nichols' daughter and I had all the top brass from Hollywood, all their children. So I stayed for nearly a year in Ibiza. Wow. And in the morning, I would, the nannies would bring the children and I borrowed the key of a discotheque. Uh, belonging to a friend of mine, and I would give them dancing lessons and free dancing lessons and flamenco and all sorts of things. Then I would tell them a story and then they would act it out for me. And then at midday I would take them all, all these kids down to the beach and give them a swimming lesson. Oh, wow. You had your own little company. Oh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, working both in you know, Europe and in Australia... Were there 
big differences in that yeah. kind of yeah because in Australia in my day it it was personality it was who you were it was names that was blah blah in England and Europe it was if you could do the job you'd do your audition and you'd get if you were good enough you got the job and no one cared like I went into I went into denial of my Aboriginal heritage and um, took me 30 years to wonder why because no one cared in England it was all about doing the job yeah I was very fortunate because an English choreographer director had come out uh, Australia he was Australian had come out from England George Carden, who's now dead, um, to direct and choreograph Anything Goes at the Princess Theatre. And he came to a late night review and saw Mary and I in a review. He said he thought review was my metier and that I should go to London. So I said, blah, blah. Eventually I did. And then I rang him. When I got off the boat, I rang and said, oh, George, I took your advice. I'm here. And he said to me, if you can find your way to the Folk Dance Society at Camden Hill, you can work for me again. I'm, I'm directing and choreographing a series for uh, ITV. And in the first week, I worked with Vera Lynn, Judy Garland. You know, I did the whole lot. What age were you when you made your way to... In the 20s. Yeah. Amazing. Would have been such a big journey. Oh, it was. No, then I went into West Side Story, and um, then I made my acting debut in a play with Stella Adler and West. End. that was crazy. Um, called Oh Dad, Poor Dad, Mama's Hanging in the Closet and I'm Feeling So Sad. It was a basically a tragic farce, theatre of the absurd, really. And I made my singing debut in oh, in a musical written by Ron Graham Australian. Uh, he wrote Robert and Elizabeth called On the Level and it was the first week in the West End and I was understudying one of the juvenile leads and he didn't turn up and I had about at five to two the stage manager came to me and said you're on now I hadn't had a rehearsal not one understudy call because it was chaos. And, uh, it was absolute chaos. And uh, Wendy Toy, who was the director, came to me and said, no, you can do it. I know you can do it. And the American musical director, I'd never sung with a big band or with pit singers before, said to me, no, you got the job, you got the voice. I'll nurse you through it. And he did. And I just settled myself down I was standing in the wings waiting to go on. A young stage manager, she came up to me and said, Oh no, you're so lucky. Barbara Streisand's in the second front row of the dress circle. Oh I went into I went into total nerves. And I went on and after a very nervous start, I settled into it. It was fine. And there was a big dance number. And, you know, I'd never had a rehearsal but I was on stage during this dance number, so I vaguely knew it, but I improvised. 
And you know, I couldn't learn it after that. I couldn't. There were special calls for me to learn it, and I couldn't. There's so many performances that you've done and shows that you've worked on. Are there ones that really stand out to you as being particular highlights? Um, when I choreographed the Danish version of Fiddler on the Roof, that was a stand-up. Um, yeah, you know, when I did the boyfriend, when I came home to restage the boyfriend, now remember, I'd left here under a cloud because no one accepted me, but that didn't bother me. Um, and yet I came home as this visiting choreographer to re-choreograph my production of The Boyfriend in the West End. And Sandy came with me and he directed it. And when the audience applauded on the opening night, I couldn't believe it. I was absolutely... Sandy said, they're applauding your work. I couldn't believe it. What did it mean to you? It meant more to me doing it here than it did in the West End because in a way what it did was I showed people that all I was interested in was performing. Like in the West End, I danced the tango myself with a girl named Suzanne Kirchus. Well, because when and I met Suzanne when I was in Canterbury Rep, this is why England produces such good actors. I did Treasure Island in the morning with a young Bill Zappa who'd just come out of drama school. In the afternoon, I did Aladdin dressed in green, looking like Shirley Bassey in a wind tunnel. And in the <laughs> evening, I played Harry Ritchie in Brigadoon. Yeah, wow. What a full day. That, that was a full day. Yeah. That was during the holidays season. Funny enough, Bill Zappa was just out of college, drama school. It was snowing. We were having tea. And he said to me, oh, God, you know, and he was really in despair about his career. I said to him, why don't you go to Australia with your voice and your whatever? You know, you'd be an instant. You'd get work instantly. And eventually he came to Australia and um, he's never looked back. Yeah, wow. Full of good advice. Yeah, and Ron Falk was in, in uh, Aladdin, an Australian actor, and I played the chief. <laughs> and a very famous English actor was played the dame. Well, he used to grope me from behind when no one, you know, when the audience, and of course the genie can't, do anything. I stand like this and he used to say, a long green thing like you came out of a little lap like this. I waited until the last performance. I said to him, madam, it may not be much, but I call it home. <laughs> and left off stage. <laughs> Look, over like such a period of time, there's been so many changes in kind of theatre and what performance is and dance. And oh, yes. You know, you would have seen so I've many I've seen so many differences and I've worked with so many choreographers, but most of the choreographers were all, all of the choreographers that I, I worked with or studied with, like I studied with um, when Catherine Dunham was here, 
I joined her company as one of the Dunham dancers, and she used to give these strange ballet classes. But every every choreographer and teacher that I worked with, and I studied jazz with one of the great American dancers, mathematics, and uh, in London. But they all started their career in ballet. See, only I'm I'm a firm believer that only when you have the classical background can you break the mold, as it were. Mm. But now I've seen lots of changes, some good, not all good. I hate seeing people rolling around the floor with, for no reason at all, in so-called modern dance. Yeah. Yeah. Are there styles of dance that are around um, in this period of time that are new that you find really exciting? Yeah, I... Yeah, I do. I find, I find American dancers watching. So you think you can dance? I find the American uh, contemporary dancing wonderful. Mm. I, I, it hasn't sort of come through in the same way to Australia yet, but it will. Mm. There are some really great creative dancers. Mm doing modern dance and I but legs on the wall is great we were speak, we were talking about legs on the wall and I you know I can remember seeing when Gideon first started legs on the wall a festival in Sydney and they were up on a building doing their thing that was wonderful and I think Lucy Garren's work is great yeah historically there's been a I guess a bit of a cultural cringe in terms of what's here in Australia and the work that people are creating and they look elsewhere to Europe or um, to the US. Do you feel that that's shifted over your lifetime? It has. It's not only shifted in work, but it's shifted in mentality and that is the main thing. Um, There are people who do great work. I think Graham Murphy's early work was wonderful. Yes, the cultural cringe no longer really exists. It does in some aspects, but not in dance. I think dancers now are trying to move away from it. Mm. You explained yourself um, as a radical dancer previously. What does that mean? Well, radical in the sense that I wanted always to find a different way of expressing myself. One of the things I was known for in London was that I could work with actors like Richard Eyre, Sir Richard Eyre now, called me into when I work with, I went up to Edinburgh at the Lyceum to do something, oh, West Side Story, I think, or something. Um, And Richard asked me to work with the actors uh, because I would get them just to walk across stage and I could see the way they moved. And from that movement, I would then extend their natural. You know, it's no good trying to teach an actor to ballet. Yeah. Or, or you know, to dance in that. And that's where Australians made a lot of big mistakes because they got their actors to... And they look very clumsy doing it to dance. 
mm. instead of taking what they could do naturally and moving. And of course, when I went to Africa, South Africa, that was, I saw a lot of move, a lot of Africans and the way they moved and walked and, mm. and you know, went, I purposely found clubs that were banned and where I could get in just to see the way they danced and moved. Mm. Yeah. I am, um, in the last year, I've been interviewing people living with HIV about, for, for a research project. Um, and I've read quite a few articles about the impact that the AIDS epidemic had on dance and the arts. Oh. You know, as well as a whole range of other yeah. areas that didn't just occur there. Well, as you know, my lover, uh, 17 years, died from, uh, well, he died from an HIV infection, but it was before HIV had a name. Yeah. It was only when Rock Hudson came out in Paris and told the world that he was dying and that he was gay, that it had a name, because up till then it was, people thought it was... Um, monkeys, you know... The gay play. Yeah, the gay yeah. play. Yeah. Well, I saw, when I was in America for an auction in New York, I went down to a club with a friend of mine afterward, after we'd had dinner, uh, to um, Christopher Street, and I saw a, a, a poster and it said, circus performance for gay cancer. I said to him, what's gay cancer? He said, oh, it's attacking young boys, but thankfully we're now too old to get it. That was one of the, one of the things. Beliefs, that, yeah, yeah. One, one of the beliefs. And when Dave was dying, his own mother would not have a cup of tea in our house. Wow. And I nursed him till he died, and... I put him back in hospital and uh, it was New Year's Eve and some friends had sent champagne from uh, Paris and he didn't know where we were. He not, uh, except I took, he was on an oxygen mask and I took it off him and I said, I'm going to end it now. And he, in a moment of clarity, he said to me, Aren't you glad we stopped having sex? I said, no. And his eyes filled with tears, and they were the last words he ever spoke. Wow. And I walked down the hall. I said to his doctor, you have to help Dave out now. He was put on, then they put him on a morphine machine. And oh, was he? on the third day, he started fitting. I was in his room, and he started fitting which is like sitting upright in bed and waving and doing. So I walked down the hall with his pillow and I said to his doctor, you have to kill Dave now. If you don't, I will. And the doctor said to me, you know what you're asking me to do? It's illegal. I can tell you now because it was 30 years ago. But, mm. um, so it's off the statutes. But I said to, I said to him, Look, if you can't do it, I can. I'm not going to see him suffer. Mm. And so he went. The, the doctor had a conflict with the other doctors there, 
and we walked back to Dave's room. He said, wait outside. And um, almost immediately he called me in. He said, He's, you can hold him. And he'd been injected in the heart and died. Wow. It was really bad. But for me, personally, it was bad. But also, it was... I lost about 80 friends in that first wave. 80 friends, business acquaintances, dancers, um, actors. Yeah. How did that shape, you know, the work that people were making or...? Well, it shaped playwriting yeah. more than anything else, I think. There was play... In fact, I had money in a play, The Normal Heart, which... Um, Martin Sheen did. Uh, people started... Well, it was difficult because there was a young New Zealand psychologist named David Green. He, he, he asked me to help him set up um, the first AIDS training clinic, uh, which was to dispel really the rumours that were... And, floating around about the virus, uh, ways to catch it. And, um, and, you know, we, David and I, and uh, we had another boy who was HIV positive, but, you know, what really made me, in many ways, um, was, and Dave was dying, and but and he eventually died, as you know. But I, I also had, I was also counselling other boys, young boys who had the virus, who knew they were going to die, and there was no cure. Mm. There was nothing then, not like the retroviral drugs there are now. And so, I was having to tell parents that their son was going to die. Mm. Nothing can prepare you for that. Well, no, it can't. But it, it sort of helped me express myself in many ways. Mm. And then I helped set up the lighthouse in London and I met Princess Diana and um, she, was, she had a huge impact on, on the general public because she was seen holding the hand of someone with AIDS. Yeah, such a profound gesture that yeah. shifted attitude. Yeah. In your, I mean, in your book and in your life, there's been a lot of pain and, you know, all sorts of things thrown at you. And you just keep going in a way with so much grace and so much um, humility. You know, what, what dry, like, what's, that's inner strength that you have. Uh, I'm often, I've been asked about this before. Um, if you're proud of your who you are, and I've always been proud of who I am, faults and all, uh, if you can say, I'm proud of being who I am, I'm proud to be black, I'm proud to be gay, then it's another person's problem. Yeah. Yeah. And 
you know, dancing in, when I danced, in my world there was no racism, no, no one screaming abuse at me, no one bullying me, no one making me have sex with them. It was just me. Yeah. So the stage felt safe, I guess. Oh, when I danced in my world, it was very safe. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so I did, in many ways, of course, I was my own worst enemy because I was naturally a very good dancer, so I didn't work as hard as I should have. (laughs) Do you ever miss those times on stage? I do, and I'm sitting in my wheelchair now, and what I do is I put on a piece of music and I dance to it. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, you've spoken previously about the power of performing arts um, to kind of engage young people generally, but, you know, First Nations people. Oh, First Nations people, yeah, they... Uh, you know... Leah Purcell, who I know very well and I was I worked with and just received the Premier's Literary Award. Yeah. Well that's what young indigenous people have to aim for. The hate has to go. It's no good well, you know, when people of my age and I'm eighty five go uh, when the next generation goes, hopefully there'll be more young people embracing the arts generally without the hate. And the hate is passed on from uh, older, the older generation. Uh, for instance, when I set up the performing arts course at Yora, the Aboriginal College in Sydney, when I first came home to live, and I also um, took uh, Aboriginal studies, which was a sort of loose uh, sort of name for the class. And I had an older person and a younger person sitting either side of me in this mixed class. And the older person said to me, Jesus, no, you know, I'll never forgive the white man for what he did to my parents. I said, but you wouldn't want Jim here growing up with that hate, would you? And that made him think. And it made him think. Made them both think. He was passing on the hate to the younger person. What is it about the arts that can help shift? The arts, you can express yourself. I mean, that is one of the great things about the arts. I mean... If you're, you don't really have to be great, although I've worked and seen some of the great, great people. Just the desire to do it. It can alleviate pain. In my case, it alleviated the pain, the problems of every day, the fam, uh, family of drunks and drug addicts and, that I grew up with. You know, I was first sexually abused at the age of four by a drunken uncle who dislocated my anal canal and within that dislocation the cancer grew, which is why I lost the leg. Mm-hmm. Um, so the arts, any form of the arts, can 
help you cope with that? Mm. There's something about arts, um, and particularly maybe dance, where there's, there's a whole range of costs associated. And if you're starting dance young, you know, the expectation is that you do maybe three or yeah. four classes a week and that costs money. And um, in your book you explained um, stealing money so you could go um, Well, when skating. I was an ice skater, yeah. yes. I stole purses. And, what? Um, I, th- I think it is expensive to begin down and I think that's where the funding should be yeah uh, how can we make it more accessible just through funding or through well you know it's a whole if say one person goes to a ballet school right I'm at the moment I have a scholarship fund in my name and I'm also supporting four students in Africa. Um, and it can be expensive. For instance, scholarship fund, I wrote to every person. I started it with my own money, and then I wrote to everyone I'd ever worked with. And most of them all contributed, so now it's in perpetuity with the Fruit Fly Circus. Yeah. See, teachers need to be paid. Students don't, when I was a student, I didn't think about that as much as I do now, because there's a whole chain of people who have to be paid. They have to make a living, they have to, so I think essentially it's funding. And I think there should also be, like, like there is in Russia today even, um, children go through a whole process before they're accepted. And I think that has to be done here as well. Mm. To kind of help open it up? or To help open it up to say, look, darling, you'll never be an actor. You'll never be a dancer. Try something else. You know, mm. it's fairly brutal, but you, one has to do it. If somebody said that to you, do you think you would have kept going? I would have kept on um, because that was the only thing that I knew that I wanted to do. Yeah. So some way or other I would have made the grade. Yeah. yeah. Through passion and determination. Yeah, I think it can be a spur. But I think it also is... Well, it gets back to funding. They, something has to be... I think four, three or four kids being helped this year on my scholarship fund. And so they're getting part of their fees paid. Yeah. What an amazing legacy. Mm. What an amazing legacy. Well, in Aboriginal culture, I can't die before I give back. When I was very fortunate when I came out of jail... Some very kind people in Melbourne helped me turn my life around and they sent me to the Melbourne Conservatorium to study singing and music, mm. which really was hard. Um, your book, Little Black Bastard, um, 
was so revealing and so like um, incredibly well written. What is it like to have something that's so personal out there for people to read? I have to tell you, I the first draft when I read it, I tore it up because it only talked about my glittering career, so to speak. And I said to myself, if you're, if this book is going to have any meaning at all with younger people, it has you have to tell the truth about your life in Melbourne. And so, as painful as it was, I started it again. That autobiography is going to be published in, will it be released here by Magabala Books. Um, it's called And Then I Found Me. The more I talk to people, people ask me about Little Black Bastard, right? They said, but why did you gloss over so much in London? So I knew that the more I talked to I knew that I'd have to go back there one day and do the research and write a book about it. So this, the second book also is not the glittering, although it talks about my career, it talks about my daughter who died from a heroin overdose, Dave who died, and there's a whole chapter about our relationship and what happened and the AIDS, yeah. So looking back, like having written it down, looking back, does it kind of, um, does it make sense of your life, I guess? To put it down, I mean, we have all these memories, but to put them down and stick... Well, yes, in a way it does, because it's like the truth. Like I thought being beaten up by the police during the Stonewall riots, uh, which I was, I thought, well, that's normal. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, only now, when I talk about it, and that was in 1969, so it was a long time ago, and it's really helped shape the world, and certainly shaped gay rights, oh, because out of that, I went to, New, I needed a break, so I went to New York to see the latest shows on Broadway and to do some classes, jazz classes. And it was the night of Judy Garland's uh, funeral and I went with some friends, I went to class and then went uptown for dinner with some friends. And they said to me, look, there's a wake for Judy, uh, and we'd all worked with her, uh, there's a wake for Judy at uh, the Stonewall Inn in Christopher Street. Uh, do you want to go? And I said, I'd love to. So by the time we got to Sheridan Square, all hell had broken loose. Um, and so we joined in the crowd shouting, gay power, gay power. And the police formed a phalanx, a V formation, and they took out their clubs and they were beating all the gays. And I was beaten over the head. So now it's when I talk about it, it's it, 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 you know it's it's part of history. Well, such an important part of history. Yeah, too. I, because out of that, by the next morning, by the weekend, there were 
it started with 4,000 people on the street and then it, the numbers grew. Now, I don't know how many were there on the last morning, but, you know, gay... What happened was, because of that riot, the legalization of gay bars and clubs came into being in America. The gay rights movement was set up. Uh, and from that, there's been a, a gradual build-up, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the changes that you would have seen in, in the amount of rights available. Well, yes, and, you know, and I... So you've finished your second book. What's next? What's on the horizon? Well, I'm hanging on because I, I, my doctors, I have two specialists. I'm due for two more operations, but I've had 15 already. And they can't guarantee that I'll wake up from the anaesthetic. Wow. And this one, this leg, I have a blockage in the artery and they want to try and do a bypass, and if it doesn't work, I'll lose the leg. So I'm holding on really until the book comes out. Then I'll decide if I'm going to have the operations or not. And I'm, I've been asking for a series of master classes, which I'll do. And uh, I love working with young people, young but young, serious people, yeah. whether it's in dance, not that I can dance anymore myself, but I certainly help yeah. their, atti their attitude towards it. Well, you've certainly got a legacy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to Delving Into Dance. I can strongly recommend Noel's books, Little Black Bastard, and then I Found Me. You can find a list of episode notes at delvingintodance.com. Delving Into Dance is on Twitter, at Delving Dance, on Facebook, iTunes, and online. Help spread the word. You can check out previous episodes with the likes of Raphael Bonicella, Lucy Guerin, Gideon Obazanic, Deborah Jowett, Daniel Jaber, and a stack of others online. Until next time, take care.